0: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, an update on the streaming wars. We had Netflix earnings, Disney streaming services, other Disney streaming services, and lots more. I'll also talk to Stacey Spikes, the original founder of MoviePass, about a new service he's working on to get people even cheaper movie tickets. And how that's actually kind of a big idea about completely changing advertising forever. But first, one of the most important and hard to talk about things in tech is algorithms. The algorithms that run our lives. They tell us what to do and look at and buy and think about, but so often how they work and why they work the way that they do is a total mystery to users. There's even a big new bill in Congress trying to regulate them, lots of bills like that, actually. We've been reporting on this a bunch recently, so we're gonna try and catch you up to what we've learned. Here to help me explain, Christopher Mims and Joanna Stern. Hi, guys.
1: Good morning. Hello,
0: Joanna, are you on your foldable phone? We're gonna talk about this later, but I just need to know where it is now near you.
1: It's right here, (coughs) me clapping.
2: Listen to that satisfying click, as the screen sl- slowly falls apart.
0: <laughs> okay, we're gonna come back to all that, but first, uh, let's talk about let's talk about algorithms. So we we've written recently about uh, the bias in algorithms. We've had more terrible Facebook news about how its algorithms and and data mining are are doing insane things. But what I really want to talk about here is this sort of tension that we're starting to feel between how algorithms work and how important they are in the day-to-day running of our lives and increasingly the world, and how little we understand what's going on. And Mims, this is this is what you really wrote a lot about. Um, I want you to tell us the story that you told at the beginning of your column uh, a week or so ago about Eric Loomis.
2: So Eric Loomis uh, was convicted of more or less being an accessory, six years in prison, the judge when deciding how much time to sentence him to consulted an algorithm called the compass which stands for correctional offender management profiling for alternative sanctions and it is controversial because it is a it's a it's got some ai in it and it is used by uh you know like judges and law enforcement all across the country to decide how big a risk anyone is of committing a crime again. So if you go before a judge and they consult this algorithm and it says, hey, this person's a high risk, person, they could then give you a longer sentence. There has been some ACE reporting by ProPublica, which seems to show that this algorithm is racist. So, you know, all of the things being equal, the color of your skin will get you, according to this algorithm, a longer sentence. And so that has become, I think, the the sort of central example of what are the dangers of uh, the bias of these unaccountable algorithms that are ruling more and more Parts of our life, whether it's who gets insurance or what the rate is on their insurance, to you know who gets credit or not, to in the case of a HUD lawsuit against Facebook, uh, apparently who gets shown uh, advertisements for uh, housing in a violation of the Fair Housing Act and a oh, wow. what looks like a kind of modern day redlining.
0: Okay. So, and the the I feel like there are two things sort of going on here simultaneously. One is that we generally, as as normal people do not understand how these algorithms work. they are just things happening in the background and we're shown something or sold something or whatever, and we have kind of no idea why these systems are too complicated by design. And then on the other side, you have this related problem of algorithms being necessarily biased, which is part of what you argue in that column, which is that these things are not perfectly fair. The way you train them or the way you design them or the way that the way that they're conceived in general means they cannot be... Perfectly objective ever.
2: The problem is if you're asking an algorithm to make a decision to discriminate between two outcomes, and I mean discriminate in the sort of mathematical sense, then it automatically, by definition, has bias. So then the question becomes, what bias do you want it to have? And if, you know, federal law says, you know, it's illegal in making certain types of decisions to have a racial bias, then, you know, you have to know that and it has to be, you know, eradicated from your algorithm.
0: But then... You run into a problem where there there's no like checkbox for don't be racist when you're starting when you're building an algorithm.
2: There is no checkbox yet, but lawmakers are moving quickly. So there's the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which was proposed by Wyden and Booker, which might do this at the federal level. Uh, New York City has a task force studying this. They were the first in the country to move on it. Washington State is looking at it. Illinois, you know, they're all trying to have these bills that do different things that uh, will either force companies to be transparent about how their algorithms work so we can hold them accountable. And also the sort of top cop for insurance in New York State, just by issuing what's called a clarification, made it illegal for life insurers to discriminate, you know, by race and by other measures um, when determining who is going to be offered life insurance and at what rate. So what I wonder, though, is, is any of this
0: stuff... I was reading over the the Algorithmic Accountability Act, and in some of it, it just seems like they want a thing that, as best I understand, is either sort of implausibly difficult or impossible, which is for somebody to pull back their algorithm and say, here are the exact details of how these things work. And it's like, we talk about this with Google search or with the, the Facebook algorithm, that uh, how these things are ordered. there are a bunch of things that go into them. but the why am I seeing this and not this is genuinely so difficult to explain as to mean that it might there might literally be no one who knows the full reason for why something is coming out a certain way. So is like, how practical is this idea that we can demand sort of perfect transparency from all of our algorithms that govern our day-to-day lives? It just seems like Twitter can't tell me what's why something is first on my list of tweets. Why? How would the government be able to figure it out?
2: Right. I mean, the, and this, of course, pertains to to your excellent article about how do you tweak what you see on social media. And I agree with you 100. percent Even Facebook doesn't know the answer to that question because some of the AI that powers what goes first in your newsfeed is literally a black box. It's just in the nature of neural networks and that kind of software, which is trained rather than programmed, right? Right. But when you're talking about algorithms that are making decisions about, you know, who goes to jail or insurance, you don't have to know how they work. You if you can get enough data from them, you just look at what their outcomes are. I mean, it's the same way you evaluate Uh, systemic bias in any large system. You just look at the outcomes. And if you have enough data, you can say, well, you know, this thing is systematically discriminating in this way and that's not cool. So whoever made this has to correct for that.
1: But then how I mean, even then it's like you have to wait for these systems to have really negative outcomes.
2: So there is a job now called algorithmic auditor. And, you know, one of the people I talked to for the piece has that job. And so this is a person who can actually like dig through the code, look at the data Mm -hmm. that's going in. But that is a. A brand new discipline, and I think the thing that right. we're struggling with is there is this body of law and legal precedent that deals with, you know, how do you uh, untangle discrimination, you know, in in housing or, or or other areas where there have been laws on the books for a long time. But you know, to do that with algorithms is new, and and because these algorithms now touch every part of our lives, to do it in every part of our lives is new.
1: I mean, the reason I kind of ask, and I don't want to take this too far off topic, but when all this news is hit around the seven thirty-seven Max, it's all been really about software glitches and al- and algorithms that that there were there were these glitches that the company didn't know about, and okay, if they had been regulated, if there had been more knowledge about what what had been changed by the pilots, et cetera. But ultimately, when you kind of think about it, it was like there was a bad outcome. And now they had to go back and correct it. Like what? And, and as I've been reading this story over the last number of weeks, I've sort of been thinking, but what is what is what what is the safety measure that gets taken during the process of the software development? Yeah,
0: right? like it's one thing oh. to only identify bugs after the fact when you're building like an email app. It's another one to wait for the bug reports to come in when you're determining who goes to jail and who
2: doesn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the FAA might have sort of messed up there. Like there has been coverage about how you know, Boeing was allowed to sort of self certify on some of these changes and that's not great. And obviously the FDA wrestles with this as well, because there's more and more software in our medical devices. So they're wrestling with how do we approve? I mean, right now, if you change anything, you change a single line of code in a medical Mm -hmm. device, it's got to get approved again. Um, So obviously that's not tenable either. Uh, So they're trying to find a middle ground. Um, I mean, one twist here is that even when you have complete transparency, you know, everything about how something works A bunch of academics examined that compass algorithm Mm -hmm. and they found that the challenge is that because of just disparate, I think is because like African-Americans commit more crime on average, mathematically, you could not make a sentencing algorithm that was fair in every way at once. Like if it were to sentence like white and black defendants at the same rate, then there would be some other dimension of the algorithm that would be unfair. And if you made that part fair, then another one of its outcomes would be unfair. And so, um, you know, in the case of Eric Loomis, he lost his case. Part of the finding was, hey, you know what? The judge would have given you this sentence anyway. Like this sentence was in line with what judges give you. There, I think, is a larger struggle with, you know, algorithmic bias exists, but sometimes what it illuminates is just systemic bias uh, within a given system. It goes beyond a software question and it becomes a, a moral and ethical dilemma that we have to solve in a much harder way. Like given all of what you just said,
0: what is the goal? What, what can we feasibly expect to do here? It's not like algorithms are going away. It's not like people are going to stop being biased. Like, What's the sort of end game here for some
2: of these folks? More transparency would be great. They don't have any incentive to be the least bit transparent. And But what we absolutely need with algorithms that are making almost life and death decisions is we need to know how they work. And is that realistic? Are we gonna get there? Yeah, we can absolutely get there. I mean, so often when there's all this complaining about, oh, we can't do it, what that really means is they just haven't had a sufficient incentive. Nobody's forcing right. them to. It's just hard, and it doesn't make us sense. It's any- hard, and it's expensive, and it takes yeah. up too much time, and I'm too busy making money with this ad algorithm. Like, don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
0: So as as we've talked about on the show before, there's a new streaming service like every eight seconds. But last week, we finally learned more about the one everyone has been waiting for. Uh, It's called Disney Plus. It's coming in November, and it'll have Marvel, Star Wars, The Simpsons, Pixar, National Geographic, apparently, all your old favorite Disney movies, and lots more for $7 a month. But this isn't just a straightforward Netflix competitor, and it kind of represents this complete rethinking of what Disney even is. Oh, and it's not even the only Disney streaming service that was in the news this week. Eric Schwartzel, a general reporter in LA, has been covering Disney's moves for a while now. So we're going to call him and get the full scoop on whether you should start saving seven bucks a month right now. Okay, Eric, thank you for being here.
3: Hey, how's it going, guys?
0: Here's where I want you to start, which is like a long time ago cuz i feel like this this thing that disney is doing now is kind of the result of stuff it's been talking about for years and is this sort mm-hmm. of big change in what disney is so like where does the the sort of disney plus story start
3: i mean i think when a lot of the narrative changed with disney was several years ago when CEO Bob Iger made what I think seemed like at the time maybe an innocuous comment on the call um, with investors where he said that ESPN, um, which has always been the most profitable part of his company, um, was showing some subscriber losses. And it was the first indication that the cord-cutting revolution was coming to Disney, the world's largest entertainment company. For the next I'd say two or three years, every time he had an earnings call with investors, so four times a year, it didn't matter how much money his parks were making, how much money his movies were making. I mean, you would have a quarter where you'd have movies like Black Panther up for Oscars and making hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. And all investors wanted to talk about was what is happening at ESPN What's happening in the subscriber numbers? And then every year you would see a steady decline, two or three million subscribers each year cutting the cord and dropping ESPN. And that was what was starting to see we were starting to see sort of an existential threat to Disney and Hollywood at large when it came to -to direct-to-consumer options like Netflix eating into those traditional, you know, methods of distribution.
0: Okay. So and that all builds up to this big investor day that they'd been talking about for a while that Disney had kind of leaked details of Disney plus and what they were going to do with this big streaming service. But it felt like that, that investor day in Burbank was the, this like stake in the ground. We are a different company now. Were you there for that?
3: Were you there? Yes, I was. Yes. And I, I totally agree. And I've been covering Hollywood for six years now and I've never seen Disney, Disney, Do something like this. It started around two in the afternoon and we were all, you know, you drove over to the lot in Burbank and they had us go into this big soundstage where I was told the original Mickey Mouse Club filmed. And like it was across the street from the stage that where Blackish is currently filming, they had us come in, and they had totally retrofitted the um, soundstage so that it looked like I walked in and I felt like I was at a TED Talk conference. They had this <laughs> huge um, like projection screen behind the speakers um, with um, these floating plus signs, and then there were like these rafters, essentially, of seats where um, there were probably about two hundred analysts, media, and executives there. Not only Disney executives, but like Jeffrey Katzenberg was there and other other people from the industry. It was a three-hour presentation. I mean, it's a small detail, but one thing that stood out to me is everyone when you sat down at your seat was given a uh, a notebook commemorating the day like a little like almost like moleskin type binder that said Walt Disney Company Investor Day 2019 and mm-hmm. i thought like i mean it's a, it's like i said it seems like a small detail but someone had to design that and they had to print like 500 of them to commemorate an investor day it seemed like there was no detail overlooked which isn't you know very surprising to anyone who's been to a disney park they are sticklers for detail um (laughs) they um walked us through not only like the programming that they are going to be showing on the series i think it seems like the apple event the apple uh streaming event was looming large in their minds because there was definitely you know a lot of information about what kind of content will be on Mm. the service. you know as since apple was sort of criticized for for you know holding a little bit too close to the vest on that front
1: yeah, I had a couple of questions about the day because I heard about it. The first thing was, so Mickey Mouse didn't actually go on stage.
3: No, Mickey. There was a um, there that's was a sort of saccharine montage about how it was, all started with a mouse, um, but that's there was no the suit,
1: course. no 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 big. Uh, Animal suits?
3: No, but they did have stormtroopers stationed outside who would like pose for photos with the analysts, and you know, like with their microphoned voices say like "keep it moving, guys," you know, things like that. <laughs> so, so they had they had stuff like that, and and um, but no, it was very much a a suit and tie affair. Not a lot of um, sort of theme park characters roaming around.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by this whole service because. I'm a semi-new parent. Two years old. My son's two years old, and he's just started getting into Disney stuff. And last week alone, I bought Toy Story One for twenty dollars, a whole season of Mickey Mouse Club, the new horrible animated. It's just like it just ruins my childhood, but he seems (laughs) to love it. Um, And we are all singing the addicting songs. Do you guys want me to sing?
0: Yes, please. I'd love to hear hot dog,
1: hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. No. Okay.
2: No, but please keep not, going. Not, I don't think not,
1: we should. Not familiar. Nothing. Familiar. <laughs> no one's familiar, Mims.
2: I banned that from my household. Smart. <laughs> Sorry. I'm really questioning your parenting choices I right know. now. You know, I we're know, gonna have to talk about
1: this offline. Kids love Mickey Mouse, and I was told like we're gonna have to do Disney anyway. And like I added it up, and I was like, I just spent like forty, no, I'm, like a little under forty dollars on Disney content in the last two weeks, and then the seven dollar plan comes out, and I'm like holy crap, this is exactly what I want. I'm going to sign up right away. Right. And I think that, you know,
3: you saw that there's this option that you can like on Netflix, you can download for offline viewing mm-hmm. as long as you're a subscriber. And one thing that I'd heard and that's sort of the, one of the scuttlebutts in Hollywood is that Netflix, because it caters to an older demographic, deals with the issue that a lot of streaming um, services do, which are people who subscribe, binge a show, and then unsubscribe until they have to binge another. Mm. And that kind of like turning off, turning the faucet on and off can, you know, over time really add up to some, some you know, pretty big losses. But Disney, because of this, you know, the children's habit to watch, of watching the same thing over and over and over again, is automatically a 12-month-a-year subscription.
1: Right. Of course, my thought is like they'll raise that price. But yes, downloads. And even the fact that you've got this old library of Disney movies, right? Like Bambi and Snow White and other classics that probably no kids today want to watch, but we all want to watch. Right.
2: So does this mean that like eventually, I mean, just sorry to ask the obvious question that everybody always asks, but I got to ask it. Eventually, are we paying every studio for their streaming or do they rebundle themselves and it's cable all over again?
3: Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they would run into potential antitrust issues if they tried to bundle like that. I'm not I'm not sure. But I mean, one thing I think that the I think like Warner Brothers and Universal, which have also announced these streaming efforts. One thing they're going to run into is that you just cannot expect everyday consumers to know who owns what movies and TV shows.
0: Well, and that's where Disney is unique, right? Because it's it has of all of the brand names that people would know off the top of their head, mm-hmm. Disney probably has more of them than just about anybody, between Marvel and Star Wars and Moana. Disney. And Moana and Pixar, and so it's like, I think you can just say Disney and people get a way more complete mm-hmm. picture of what it's gonna offer than just about anybody else. But what I wonder about Disney is, so in after this announcement there was this uh, diagram that, that Walt Disney drew up, I don't know, decades ago about sort of how Disney works where it's like the content in the middle and then, you know, it jets out to theme parks and merchandising and all of these different parts that are sort of spawned by the the movies that they make that funnel into everything else that Disney does and sell you. So it's less about selling you the movie and more about making you care about Moana so that you'll buy Moana stuff and go on Moana rides. And what I can't figure out exactly is how Disney Plus fits into that. I like the idea that eventually mm-hmm. being a Disney Plus subscriber could get you, I don't know, fast passes at Disney World and a week early access to merch or whatever. That feels like the kind of thing mm-hmm. that is going to make even more families start to sign up and then you just spend more time in the Disney universe because, well, you're kind of already paying for it so you can watch Moana over and over.
1: Right. And yeah. also a, a great reason to up the price over time.
0: Yes. Totally.
1: Which I think you know everyone sort of believes that $7 is $7 today, but it's not $7 for long. I mean, it's the, if you look at all of our services, how much of the subscription rates gone up? I mean, Netflix, Prime, just last week, YouTube TV. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's $5 dollars or $10.
0: Yeah. So Eric, one, one last question before we let you go here. I, I wonder about the tech behind all of this because I feel like, and we even just saw this recently with the the Game of Thrones premiere, which crashed basically every streaming service that it was on. Disney's This big tentpole thing, and they're going to try to get tons of people watching it. Is do they have the technology to actually make this stuff work at the volume they're trying to make it work? I imagine kids are not going to be pumped about waiting for Disney movies to buffer for hours at a time.
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think that's. I think the biggest looming question, as as far as I see it, is how Disney manages this transition into becoming essentially a tech company, perfection reigns. They don't release a movie until it is as good as can be. But it seems like for the most part, they've outsourced um, a lot of that tech side to to that new, essentially new division of the company.
0: Okay, fair enough. I mean, and, and it feels like, so this isn't coming out till November, so there's going to be a lot more to see. But I, I got the sense from talking to folks right after the announcement that seven bucks a month for all this, all these Disney movies, even if they don't have everything even if they don't even if it's just like the vault and pixar for anybody with kids which is just a no-brainer right like joanna christopher i, I you guys are both just parceling away the seven bucks a month already
2: right
1: yeah i've been setting aside the cash in my house $7 <laughs> make them pay in cash.
2: themselves do their chores
1: this new podcast is called mims is a better parent it's <laughs> like my attic. kids have never seen a screen <laughs> <laughs> All right, any last questions for Eric before we let him go? Eric, are you dressed in a Mickey Mouse suit? Oh,
3: At the moment, no. I did see a couple um, people sort of paying homage to Disney's acquisition history, like Mickey Mouse, Darth Vader, and Deadpool. Like, trying to sort of be like a walking history of Bob Iger's acquisition. Creativity. Is there such thing
1: as a Bob Iger mask?
3: No, I think you sort of
1: sure can take a couple it.
3: of those, like, rubber masks and appropriate it in a couple ways.
0: You just have to be like a really handsome, slightly too tan man with very good hair. It's pretty, it's doable. And
1: yeah. then money just raining on you. And then money.
0: <laughs> okay, now before we get to Stacey Spikes and the maybe possibly future of the movie theater, it's time for our short segment called Today I Learned. Uh, Joanna, today you learned, I think, that phones fold.
1: That's my fold, phone, <laughs> folding. It's really That's aggressive. That's my phone. That's a, like,
0: like Serious fold. That it's is not It's really gentle. like
1: satisfying, like the click of an old cell phone, like a flip phone. But is there a way, magnet? Ma- way more nerve-wracking. Yes, there's a magnet, and it actually oh. sticks to my Apple Watch band.
2: Whoa. <laughs> Will kids get tiny fingers smashed in this thing? Not oh, I'll
1: try it at home. I'll let you know. <laughs> but here's the thing. It feels really sturdy. Okay. But you kind of in your heart feel every time, oh, no. And then in the <laughs> crease of the phone where it actually folds... It, sometimes the screen kind of discolors or changes colors because of this, you know, the LCD is bending, and that also sort of makes me want to die every time it happens. But then I live. Sounds about and it's, right. And then I realize this is the future.
0: <laughs> okay, so this is this is the Samsung Galaxy Fold. We'll we'll have more when you've had more time with it. But give us your your first couple I mean, of days worth of impressions.
1: Maybe we will. Maybe it'll break because it seems like lots of people's are breaking right now. Yeah, but, this is a
0: thing floating around on Twitter,
1: which is shocking because my review unit usually breaks. Like I usually break something that I'm reviewing, but this is working perfectly fine. I mean, other than other than this crease that I think is getting worse, but I'm not sure if it's just the dirt on the screen makes it look worse. It's been it's been really fun to play with. I don't think I, I again. I'm just starting to really kind of get into the review here, but. I don't think I know anyone I would recommend this for to buy. Like, I, I don't think there's anyone in the world I would say you should go buy this for $2,000. But I sort of want everyone to play with it because it feels, it feels like the future. A small phone when you need a small phone and then a big screen when you need a big screen.
0: Is it annoying dealing with this like TV remote sized thing?
1: So I actually like the size, like the size is fun. And it, when you're making phone calls, David, I called you earlier in the week and I was like, I can't wait to hold this thing up to my face and, and call you and call someone. And, so and it's you like, did
0: it with the giant screen. I did that to too. Face, yeah. right? I, I imagine you look amazing.
1: I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so the size, like the long, the, like the vertical length does not bother me. But basically you have to picture that there's a screen and then on the top and the bottom it's flanked by, I would say it's about an inch of space. That's like it's for me. It's like basically the top of my thumb. You know, it's actually my thumb, basically. Like okay. so, the line on my, you know, the first line on my thumb. Whatever. They, what are these called? Knuckles. Joints. Yeah, um, like just black space and clear space. So it's like there's just a tiny screen on this front thing, and that's where this feels just like a really early beta product. the The front of the display feels like uh, I like. It feels like going back ten years on using a smartphone display. But, but
2: to be clear, this is two firsts in one. Like one is a folding phone and the other one is a commercial large scale double sided phone, which we've seen gimmicky versions of before, but I don't True. To the best of my knowledge, that's not a mainstream thing.
1: For sure. Look, again, like this is this is a amazing first generation product i think unless like a lot of these phones really do break and then it won't actually be a product it will just be a first generation prototype that sort of made it out i think that the that the idea of it is great i think the execution is actually far better than I thought it would be. Like it actually feels quite sturdy. It has a lot of the great act the the great features of the S10 family. The screen inside is actually quite nice to use, the the bigger 7.4-inch screen. This crease that everyone's complaining about, like it it definitely is noticeable, but it's not like, oh, I can't use this big screen because there's a crease there. And when you're looking at it dead on. It's it's fine. You don't you don't really see it. So yeah, I, I mean I think that's going to be my review. Like no one should buy this thing, but everyone should try it.
0: Fair enough. And someday this thing might be really cool.
1: I think definitely someday this thing will be really cool. I hope Samsung can can get its act together on on some of this stuff. But I think if they're going to make the displays and more and more phone manufacturers are going to have access to it, it's going to be a very interesting playing field. Okay.
0: All right. So we'll we'll circle back on this when.
1: I and if mind. you have
0: crazy new things to tell us, yeah. When your screen just completely falls off of your device, we'll we'll, we'll come back to it. Coming up in just a second, my interview with Stacy Spikes, the founder of MoviePass, on everything about the ever-changing movie business and his next big idea pre-show, which might be even weirder than MoviePass. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihabrediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. Stacey Spikes has had a long career all over the entertainment business, but if you've heard his name before, it's probably as the founder of MoviePass, the movie theater ticket subscription service that has had a completely insane last few years. But Stacey left MoviePass before things got really crazy, and now he's back with a new company called PreShow. It gives you movie tickets in exchange for watching long advertisements on your phone, complete with tech to make sure you're actually watching. Stacey's idea is actually bigger than movie theaters, and even bigger than entertainment in general. He thinks he might have the keys to the next revolution in advertising, one that puts you back in control and rewards you directly for your attention rather than giving all that money to Facebook and Google. When I called Stacy, we got into all of that. But first, we talked about MoviePass and what he learned from starting that company that might help him this time. Like, for instance, all the different ways he tried to make MoviePass work in the first place.
4: So the first version uh, in 2011, we built straight into movietickets.com platform. So Uh. what you would do is you would go in the app and you would say, I want to go to this movie. They didn't have assigned seats, but you would pull a ticket out of inventory and then it gave you a confirmation number. So you would walk to the theater. There was no card involved. You'd walk to the theater and then you would just punch in the confirmation on the keypad of the kiosk and it would spit out your ticket. That was the very first version of how we did it. And then AMC was a very large shareholder of movie tickets at that time and they shut us down. And so they Completely closed us down, and we had to figure out how we were going to survive. And it kind of sent us on a path to becoming independent. That we didn't go through a, a third party provider. Uh, there was a middle step, which you would say, "I want to go to this movie." You would. This was bad. This was just like bubble gum and tape, <laughs> But you you would print a voucher with them in, in at home on your printer, and it was a single use credit card. Basically, so it would the voucher would say Spider Man, this theater, 10 o'clock, this credit card number with exp- expiration date, and ten dollars. You would walk up to the box office, and the manager would have to personally key in the credit card number and would give you a ticket. Well, the managers just hated that because. <laughs> Friday night, they're busy. They got to come over because the cashier didn't have the ability to do it. The managers always did and They were yelling and screaming, stop this. This is horrible. But we didn't have any other solution. And then came the card solution. And we ended up getting a patent for that technology because it didn't exist. We had to literally build something that didn't exist. So the the debit card and the geolocation piece coming together that had never existed and um so you had to, you know necessity is the mother of invention
0: i mean like at some point you would think that would just become sort of undeniable and it's like okay this is clearly going to work everybody fought netflix and they were like streaming won't yeah. work until streaming worked and then it was like okay well this yeah. obviously works we have to get on board here but that doesn't seem to have happened with with movie pass what is it about this particular no i think
4: it thing? i i mean i think it did look AMC's at what almost five hundred thousand members in their That's their true. subscription. And uh they fought you, you harder than anything. Al- yeah. Alamo Draft House has theirs. Regal's gonna announce that they're they're gonna come with the subscription. Studio Movie Grill has one, uh Cinemark has one, you have Cinema, you have so it happened. See the thing in Hollywood is no one gets behind one leader. Hmm. Everybody has to have their own version of it. <laughs> but the point of the matter is for the consumer today, you have two ways of going to the movies now. You can do a subscription or you can do a pay-per-view. So it happened. Hollywood was up. The box office for 2018 was up six percent. And you know, probably four or five hundred million of that was movie pass. We weren't moving the needle on tent poles. Everyone was going to go see Star Wars, but it was 20 or 30% of things like Ladybird. Anything people were on the fence, uh, should I go see it or not? Well, they went because they were like, I already paid for it.
0: The, the Star Wars Ladybird thing is actually a really interesting example because it seems like there's this race happening where, on one side, you have theaters and studios and everybody trying to figure out how to get more people to go to theaters to see Ladybird. And yeah. you have platforms on the other side saying, "Forget going to the theater. You know, here's Ladybird." Do you have a sense of who's going to win this race? Like, are we just going to end up in a place where the only movie in theaters is Star Wars because that makes all the money? No, anyway?
4: no, no, no. Look, the the beauty is this is an old, 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 old conversation, right? So there was theater. Then came TV. <laughs> TV's going to kill theater. Then there was VHS and Beta up uh, videos here cinema's over <laughs> then there was dvd uh dvd is here cinema's over then there was streaming Up, uh, it's gonna kill it here's what i think people miss if i'm gonna use a music industry analogy because i originally came from the music industry the in theater is the live event Of cinema. Okay. So if what people misunderstand is they think that the theater is an arcane form of distribution, it's not. It never has been. Its purpose is the communal activity. No matter what, there are some people who are going to go to the football arena and watch football in a stadium because they love it. Mm -hmm. They love the peanuts and the hot dogs and the yelling and the screaming and the cold and the rain, and they want to be in that stadium. But you can also see that football game on more and more and more devices. So it's the same thing. Movie going is the number one out of home social activity on the planet. People want to get out of their house. (laughs) And they want to go sit in the dark with a bunch of other people and have a communal experience. And that's never going to change. Yeah. And that's so the
0: point. If I'm a theater owner, then my yeah. job is to give you a reason to come to my thing, which I guess is like yeah. you're seeing, you know, the, the luxury chairs and the food is getting yes. better. And so the idea is yes. like, OK, you can watch this anywhere. Yes. I have to make it. the This has to be the best place to watch it.
4: Yes. And I think there's two approaches. They call it F&B and sight and sound right food and beverage and sight and sound Mm. it it was used to be wooden seats with no cushions then (laughs) it was seats with cushions and then it would had the metal chairs and the metal chairs went to the leather chairs and the screen got bigger and it got taller and it got wider that stuff is always changing right they're testing out the seats now that shake and headgear in these auditoriums that allow you to see 180 and Mm. be inside all of that stuff is 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 Virtual reality going to help augment the new version of a 3D? Sure. All that stuff's coming. It's all food and beverage, sight and sound. What hadn't changed in almost 100 years was pay-per-view. It was buy a ticket, go. Right. Buy a ticket, go. I was watching consumer habits changed, and we weren't updating that part of the equation. And engagement, wall, garden, subscription engagement was becoming... a a newer medium, a way of engaging. Uber didn't change the idea of getting in the back of a car and a driver taking me from point A to point B. They made the engagement easier, right? So we weren't using that phone to make, you could look up Showtimes and buy a ticket. We weren't making it easier in your thought process of, should I go or should I not? And that's what, I wanted to try and help tackle and that's what we're about to go after again with pre-show because brands spend 11.5 billion dollars a year in product placement in movies I want
0: to get into that but before I do I just want to make sure so the way I understand pre-show is that I want to watch a movie and then I'm before I watch that movie I watch uh some long form advertisement I think it's used like 15 to 20 minutes I think it's on the website Mm -hmm. Mm um and there's a way that the system has of tracking that i'm actually watching so i have to yeah. actually pay attention to this thing and then at the mm-hmm. end i get credit that i can yep. use towards a movie ticket is that is that perfect essentially
4: how it works okay. perfect I, I i'm gonna take you on the road with me <laughs> <I> <laughs> <nailed can>. it. <laughs> that's perfect i remember when i saw uh will smith and iRobot, and motorola had introduced the first bluetooth earpiece oh you, wow you, do you remember that? i do i didn't so, even think about so, that as
0: product placement that's a good one so
4: He's sitting in the car. He gets in and he puts on the Motorola Bluetooth. You (laughs) see the little blue light come on and he puts it. And that was this is a futuristic film. Motorola launched that product in that movie. I went and bought it. Brands know it worked. They actually fight and compete, to get their car or get their glasses or get their clothes on the bodies of those people because it has cause and effect. They're spending all that money, but they don't get an opportunity to directly touch us. And now for the first time, because of our phones, not only are they qualified that they're a film goer, they qualified that they just picked the movie that your product is Mm. in. The next step that happens is you're going to show them the product, a deep dive behind the scenes. So Motorola is going to talk about how it was engineered and the Bluetooth technology. And for the first time, it's cordless. They will say, would you like to try it? And if I say yes, I'm going to get to sample it. And I'm going to get to say, I'm testing out the very thing that Will Smith is wearing in (laughs) that movie. And if I want to keep it, pre-show has a credit card on file and I keep it. If I don't like it, I send it back. You've never been able to do that in the history of cinema and branded product placement, ever. Okay.
0: that's. I mean, that's a really interesting... Take on things. My my two sort of pushbacks. of Reading this as a as a user, looking through your yep. Kickstarter and trying to figure out, are like my my immediate reactions are: a, the idea of watching an ad for fifteen or twenty minutes seems like impossibly long now mm-hmm. uh, in twenty nineteen, especially when I'm I can't you know look at my phone during because it's 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 on my phone and it's paying attention, right. and that there's something about the the technology that uses facial recognition or whatever it is to make sure that I'm still watching that feels a little yep. bit creepy
4: people's perception when they hear this concept is i'm gonna have to watch those really bad medical ads that you see on a lot of networks and it's like and and i'm and i'm gonna pry your eyes open i'm gonna make you watch it just lists of side effects
0: to medication for 15 minutes
4: (laughs) if you have if your legs fall asleep if you fall asleep (laughs) if you feel like if you get hungry at 12 o'clock you know you may have extended bowel syndrome so the the, what we're describing is branded content or the term branded entertainment. Branded entertainment is short films, not commercials. Mm-hmm. So there's a very big difference. And so – Like Apple's very best, good at this, right? That's Apple's the sort of stuff you're good at about. It. Yep. Like you saw the girl. She comes home, the one where she dances in her apartment. That's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah. And if it's related to a movie you just picked – I already am interested in this so you're not it's not painful to me so that's the first thing second part is uh, the best way to describe the experience is you know when you walk into a room there's a motion detector that turns your lights on Mm -hmm. the 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 equivalent is the opposite it's it's the what we built was a motion detector that says David's in in front of the device I can see a face and, oh, he just got up and left the room. It's not loading up to a cloud and there's not another person sitting behind a mirror watching you. Okay. But it seems like
0: that's going to be – any system like that is always going to be – sort of beatable to some extent for people who really desperately don't want to watch so it's yeah. i would assume that that part of your pitch to these studios and and whoever's and companies whoever's making this stuff is like they have to make good things like it's that's right. i'm going to be that's able right. to find a way to keep my head in frame and not pay attention
4: that's right yeah that's exactly right yeah at the end of the day it comes back to entertaining content i won't be able to help A bad movie at the box office and I won't be able to help a bad ad on our platform that's what branded content is does this only
0: work for movies or is it everything
4: here's my prediction and I'm saying it on your podcast (laughs) Um, the next wave in my opinion is incentivized engagement whether it's loyalty points meaning I can get a discount if I engage with this branded content or I can get a free movie ticket, or I can get a free ski lift, or I can get get something. I'm going to give you points for engaging with me and spending money with me. So ultimately, we can now of do yeah.
0: Facebook and Google getting rich off of my attention.
4: I get to. Yes, you become the benefactor. Right now, you, they make money off of you, right? right? These companies make no content, pretty much. They let you make content and they make ad dollars off of you. You are the content.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: What I'm saying is, no, I'm gonna reverse it. You are the one who gets the revenue. I just take a fee to make sure I supply you with the right infrastructure so that you can get it. You make it because the brand's trying to get to you anyway.
0: At the end of our interview, I asked Stacy what he thinks about MoviePass now, and he gave a very long and diplomatic answer about how companies benefit from having a steady hand on the wheel. I think he thinks the place is as nuts as the rest of us do. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Stacy, Eric, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our editor, and thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.